Please open your Bibles to the 86th Psalm, Psalm 86. And as we draw near to the end of our study of the third book of Psalms, um, we will look at another lament. I told you when we started that book three of the Psalms is given over largely, if not almost unanimously to psalms of lament, psalms crying out to God. Uh, depending on how you count them, over a third to half of the psalms total, all 150 of them, deal with lament and pouring out complaints and crying out to God. And, and then we should find some encouragement from that because it means that God understands this walk of faith is not going to be always be easy. He sympathizes he has given us roadmap after roadmap after roadmap, showing us, let us listen in as godly men and women pour out their hearts to him. Here is how a spirit-filled godly person grieves and cries out to God in, in difficulty. And so we can learn how to do that. We can learn how to approach God's throne for grace, following in the footsteps of saints who have come before, pleading with the Lord for grace and mercy. This is also the only psalm in the... Uh, third book written by David. David dominated the authorship of the first two books, um, and then he doesn't show up as much in the Psalter. And so this is the only psalm of David, Psalm 86. Let's read the 86th psalm. To the choir master, a prayer, oh, sorry, not to the choir master, Psalm 84. Is there a buzz? Okay. A prayer of David Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever, for great is your steadfast love towards me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life. They do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show, so show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, O Lord, have helped me and comforted me. The psalm breaks down into three strophes or sections. Um, and so we'll look at it piece by piece through. But I want you to stand back and look at the, look at the sort of the big flow of the, of the emphasis. The first section, David pleads for God's grace. David pleads for God's grace. The second section, David praises God's greatness. 
And in the third, David prays for God's deliverance. And so the, the beginning, first seven verses of the psalm, are predominated by cries, petitions to God. And then it shifts into worship, exalting God. And then it comes back again to cries for deliverance. Now, very specific, the circumstance is very clear. That's sort of the movement of this psalm. David starts out clearly anxious and upset, just throwing out the petitions one after another. And then he calms himself, and he centers on worshiping on God, and he understands what his one true need is, and then he comes back to his problem. That's sort of the movement of the whole psalm. And so we'll take a look piece by piece. First, David pleads for God's grace. David pleads for God's grace. And you just look in these first seven verses, the, the cries, the prayer requests are, are there. Verse one, incline your ear and answer me. Verse two, preserve my life. Save your servant. Verse three, be gracious to me. Four, gladden the soul of your servant. Verse six, give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. There are six different petitions in those opening verses. As David, just one after another after another, what they all sum up is David needs grace. David needs mercy. Incline your ear is a term for paying attention to, regarding. Save your servant. Deliver me. Be gracious to me. And that's just really clear. Grace me, literally, in the Hebrew. Just grace me. Um, gladden my soul and give ear. David's, David's crying out to God for grace. Um, and it's what dominates this. And what's interesting is David builds arguments. If you'll notice in those first um, six verses, the word for, at least in my translation, shows up a lot. And what for frequently does is it gives a ground, it gives a reason. So in verse one, incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for, or because, or since, I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you, you are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear to my prayer, listen to my plea for grace. In the day of trouble I call upon you, for you answer me. And do you see how David doesn't just throw his petitions out, but he, he reasons with God. And so we're going to look at how do you reason with God? How do you build an argument for a prayer? And the first thing I want you to note in your blank here is don't plead your rights. Don't plead your rights. It is, it is hardwired into us to fight for our rights, to, to push back. If I feel like I deserve something, if I feel like I have a right to something, if I feel entitled to something, then I will fight for it. And I will push back for it. Don't do that. David doesn't do that. David knows he needs grace. Just grace me. He doesn't say, Lord, I've been faithful to you for 10 years. You owe me. You don't, you don't want to do that. You don't want to argue along the lines of rights, especially with God. Because when you're dealing with God, you are dealing with the one who has all rights. Right? God has all rights. And how many rights do we have? What, what rights do we have? I, I suggest that we have one right we have the right to immediate judgment. Or to put it another way, we have the right to go to hell now. Anything other, and understand this, anything other than go to hell now is grace. 
anything other than that. Pure, perfect justice, what you and I have the right to, would demand immediate judgment and damnation. And anything other than that is grace. And so when I talk to people who were fighting for their rights, you don't want your rights. You want grace. And David knows that. He's after the Lord's grace in this opening stanza. He needs grace. He's not pleading his rights. It reminds me of the story Jesus told of the Pharisee and the publican in Luke 18. Jesus told a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And he said, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners and unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. David is not coming to God with his pedigree of achievements. He's coming to God for grace. And when we come to God for grace, we find a smiling face. We find grace for a time of need. If we come to God arguing our rights, How could you let this happen to me, God? Bad things are happening in David's life. Make no mistake. Make no mistake. And David is not coming to the Lord saying, look, I'm your anointed, and I'm your king that you made king, and I was faithful, and I ran around having Saul chase me for 40 years. I don't need to put up with this. He doesn't come like that at all. I need grace. Turn your ear to me. Gladden my heart. He needs grace. And so David prays with reasons and arguments. He doesn't just throw them out there, but he, he builds a case for why God should be gracious to him. And his reasons fall into two types, reasons based on David's need and reasons based on who the Lord is. So let's take a look at some of these. First, the reasons based on David's need, not based on his accomplishment, based on his need. Verse 1, For I am poor and needy, Right? David doesn't come in strength with spiritual credit. He comes with need. And based on what he knows about God's character, coming to God in need invites God's grace. And we'll take a look at that in a minute. Verse 2, preserve my life for I am godly. And you might think, aha, David is claiming spiritual credibility there, but really it just means I am devoted to you. I'm in a covenant with you and we are united. I am yours. Um, that's really sort of the idea there. Verse um, 3, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. David points to the repetition. This isn't a prayer David just makes once and is done, but this is his continual outpouring and his need. I'm glad in the soul of your servant, for to you do I lift up my soul. And the emphasis here is David's not hedging his bets by praying to other gods. David is not seeking for deliverance from Egypt as well as calling upon the Lord. He's just lifting up his soul to God. He's, he's putting all his chips in that one basket, eggs in one basket, my mistake. He's putting all his eggs in one basket, and uh, if the Lord doesn't come through for him, he's, he's busted, he's, he's done. And so that's how he reasons with God, his own need. Lord, I need you, I've got nothing else, and I'm crying out to you day and night. 
And the reason why this type of reasoning based on need works so well is because when God helps us in our weakness, he is glorified. You think of the Lord telling Paul in 2 Corinthians that my strength is perfected in weakness as the apostle Paul asks for him to take away the thorn from his flesh. Or if you'll turn your Bibles back to Psalm 50, this becomes even more clear. And, and here's a slogan or a phrase you can write in the space in between the lines, and it's this. The giver gets the glory. The giver gets the glory. See, if we come to God as if we're trying to enrich him, as if we're trying to give him service, if we come to God like his knights who go out and do battle and we come back and with our spoils of war, who gets the glory? We do. But if we come to God bankrupt and in need... Who gets the glory when God supplies our need and fights for us? God does. Look at Psalm 50, verse 14 to 15. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Perform your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. See, another way to think about it is this, and I'm stealing an illustration here, but how do you glorify a fountain? How do you, how do you make much of a fountain? Well, what you don't do is fill up big buckets of water and go over to the fountain and pour them into the fountain and say, be enriched, O fountain. No, the way you glorify a fountain is you drink from it, you point other people to it, and you actually take water out of the fountain and you bring it back to your house because it's that good. If God is the all-sufficient, all-powerful, all-sovereign giver of goodness and grace, we don't serve him by giving him things. We don't glorify him by, here you go, Lord, and now you're that much more glorious because of what I've done for you. But rather, you come to him in need. You come to him empty-handed. You come to him with nothing. You say, help, I'm poor and needy. Help, I got no one else. And then God delights in coming to the aid of his people. Because in that circumstance, when we are sustained, when our needs are met, when we are victorious, he gets the glory because clearly we didn't do it. Clearly we didn't do it. The next point, reasons based upon who the Lord is. So David argues based upon his own need, knowing as he does that when God helps the helpless, he is glorified greatly. And as so he's saying, I know you, Lord. I know you like to glorify yourself, and I know you delight in helping the weak and the needy. Well, here I am. I'm weak and I'm needy. Help! And we can see again in that first stanza, verse 5. For you, O Lord, are a good and forgiving, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. And so it's as if David's saying, Lord, I know you, I know that you're good, and I know that you're forgiving, and I know that you have this abundant, this is where I get this picture of a spring, it's overflowing. You have this abounding steadfast love to all who call upon you, and here I am, Lord, I'm calling upon you. He's, he's building a case. He's getting God's attention based on whom he knows the Lord to be. I know you, God. You have this overflowing, abundant goodness. And you answer all who call upon you. So here I am. I'm calling. I'm knocking. I'm seeking. That's how he builds his case. Verse 6. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you for you. Answer me. David's saying from past experience, Lord, I know that you answer, which is why I'm being persistent. It's why I keep knocking on this door. It's why I keep coming back to you. It's why I'm crying out to you all the day. So, so it's not just 
coming with your petitions before God, but it's coming repeatedly, but it's coming reasoning, knowing who you're dealing with, knowing the Lord, knowing that he delights, he delights to save the humble, the broken, the needy. He resists the proud, so David doesn't come in strength with all that he's put up with and all that he's done. He comes in weakness. And it's knowing God's character, knowing that God is just an overflowing fountain of grace and forgiveness and mercy, and he answers those who call upon him. And so David reminds the Lord of that. He's he's confident, as well you'll notice. Pray with great confidence. Notice how it begins, answer me. And in verse 7, I call upon you, for you answer me. He's praying boldly. He's praying with confidence. Six different petitions calling out for grace. Built an argument. All day long praying. And yet he's doing it in confidence. This is how in a great trial and in some difficulty. We're not entirely sure what David is going through. But um, he's got adversaries we'll see at the end of the psalm. Enemies. Insolent men. Um, he's, He's in a tough spot. And he's pouring out his heart. But he's doing it, never forgetting the God that he's pouring his heart out to. And he's doing it with great confidence and great persistence. So next, we move on to David praises God's greatness. And now, David largely leaves his circumstances. We won't look at those again to the third stanza. And he really now is just focusing on the greatness and the supremacy of God. In this psalm, three different names are used for God. There's the Lord in all caps, which is the way the English Bible translates um, Yahweh, the tetragrammaton, the three-lettered sacred name of God. And then there's Lord, not in all caps, which is Adonai. And that's the word that dominates this psalm seven times, and it means sovereign master, ruler, Adonai. And then God, Elohim, shows up four times. But especially in this section, as David is looking at God ruling the nations. He's calling him Adonai, the sovereign Lord, the master, the ruler. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. And David celebrates four different areas of God's supremacy in the realms of the heavens. He says, there is none among the gods, O Lord, like you. And before you stop and say, wait a second, is David a polytheist? No. Look at the end of verse 10. You alone are God. David's probably referencing heavenly beings or the so-called gods of the nations. The point is, in that sphere, whether we're looking at other angels or demons or other gods, There's none like the Lord. He is supreme in the sphere of heaven. In the realm of nature, there are no works like yours. In the realm of man, all the nations you have made shall come and worship before you. And in human history, O Lord, they shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous things. Now notice the all-encompassingness of God's greatness and rule. And David knows that this God he serves, the God of Israel, is more than just some tribal deity. He is the God of all peoples, all nations, all times, and there will be a day. Amen. There will be a day when every knee will bow, where every tongue will confess, where all the nations will worship the Lord. And David celebrates that. Even while he is is in hiding or in danger from his enemies, he can rejoice in the knowledge that one day, one day, All peoples, 
Every tribe, every nation, every tongue will be worshiping the Lord God. And so the Lord's greatness and glory will be praised by all peoples. And this then leads to David's, really his central request. And where I plan on spending a few minutes here, as David prays out, unite my heart. Unite my heart. It's there in verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. It's interesting. The first stanza has numerous prayers that are all sort of synonymous. And yet here is one that stands out markedly differently. First one's, give me grace. Turn to me. Listen to me. Help me. Here. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. And this is David's central request, and this is his greatest need. I think, I think the thought flow works something like this. Initially, his heart is burdened with fear and concern. He pours it out to God. And then, as he begins to contemplate the greatness of God, the surety of the rock on which he stands, the question that comes into his mind is, really, the problem, the danger, isn't so much God's faithfulness to me, God's dependability to me, but really, honestly, isn't the greatest danger my faithfulness to God? Isn't the biggest weak link in the chain going to be me? Here's this God who every nation's going to worship. Here's this God who stands alone among the pantheon of other gods. Here's David with a divided heart. Really, the danger isn't, what if God doesn't deliver me? What if God doesn't rescue? What if God doesn't show grace to me? That's, that's not really the danger. The danger is, what if I am disloyal to him? What if my heart wanders away? And so David cries out, I need you to teach me your ways, and I need you to unite my heart. What he's admitting is that deep inside of David, David, of all people, the one who is a man after God's own heart, David admits within him this sort of split divided heart. And I think if we're honest, um, we'll admit the same thing. That as much as our heart loves Jesus, loves the Lord, loves his word, our heart loves other things. We sing that, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Now take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. James writes about this. He uses a slightly different phrase. Instead of a divided heart, James says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose he'll receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Greek literally split-souled. Diasuke, divided inner being. Same picture. Jesus warns about this in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. There is this great danger within every single one of us of divided loyalties. And, and we don't do ourselves any favors if we pretend it's not the case. It's why I have such a hard time singing some worship songs. What's the one, I will give you all my worship, and I'm thinking to myself, no, I won't. We heard about this last week, right? None of us have loved the Lord with all our heart, soul, and mind for you know, more than four seconds at a time. And, and yet that's the priority. That's the importance that we would have a united heart towards God. And so what do we do? So not only is this David's greatest need, though, the good news is only God can transform our heart. 
And, and here's the thing where I want to pause. Last week, we heard a message on the centrality of heart worship to God. Before we get out and do things, God wants to have a hold of our heart, right? And we know the danger of performing actions and good deeds without our heart being in it. But here's the thing that, that I think you'll discover. We are very powerless about changing the state of our heart. I mean, isn't that the case? We love what we love. We hate what we hate. We want what we want. You've ever had someone try to show you a band or a piece of music or a TV show, and they love it, they're excited about it, and you watch it, and you give it a fair hearing, but it just doesn't interest you. You can't make yourself like what you don't like. You can't make yourself love what you don't love. You can't make yourself hunger for what you don't hunger for. And, and so sometimes in the Christian life, this can get discouraging. You hear message after message about David and the psalmist. I hunger for God. I want God. And if I'm honest, you know, I'm really, that's not where I'm at. And what makes it even worse is the Bible strictly makes it our responsibility to govern our hearts. I want you to see the tension. Listen to Deuteronomy 10, 16. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. So God tells Israel, work on your heart. Jeremiah 4, 4. Circumcise yourself to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your heart, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it. Again, deal with your heart. And probably the most difficult one is Ezekiel 18.31, where God tells Israel, cast away from you all the transgressions that you've committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? And I remember the first time I read that, and I went, oh boy. God expects me, commands me, to make for myself a new heart and a new spirit. Well, then I'm done, right? We're all done I mean, if it was if sanctification were as easy as that, it would be simple. I, hey, I finally figured it out. I just got to stop loving sin. And I got to start loving God more. Done. It's not that simple. And so here's, here's the resolution, I think. Turn to, turn to Psalm 119. But I want you to get this. On the one hand, here's the tension. The Lord repeatedly places upon us, and us alone, the responsibility with dire consequences if we fail to obey, to tend, cultivate, and turn our heart towards him. And yet, in my experience, this is impossible for me to do. So Psalm 119. And, and I think here's the answer, is I'm going to try to resolve that tension. An impossible command. Psalm 119, verse 36 the psalmist cries out, Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Now, here, the psalmist, probably David, doesn't think he can turn his heart to the Lord's testimonies. He cries out to God to do it. Now, jump ahead to verse 112. I remember the first time I caught this. I went, wait a second. Because in Psalm 119, verse 112, the psalmist says this, I incline my heart to perform your statutes. And I, and I go, whoa, 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 wait a second. You're 90 something verses earlier, you asked God to do it, and now you're taking credit for it. So who is it who's moving the psalmist's heart here? And in verse 36, he says, Oh God, turn my heart to your statutes. In verse 112, he says, I turned my heart to the Lord's statutes. Here's, I think, the answer. 
the way we turn our heart to God's statutes is by asking God to do it. Isn't that wonderful? The way we direct our heart to the Lord is not by gritting our teeth and making my heart love something it doesn't love, but to cry out to God, oh God, turn my heart, like Psalm 86, oh Lord, unite my heart to fear your name. Like Psalm 51, verse 10, create in me a clean heart, oh God. Like Psalm 141, 4, do not let my heart incline to any evil. The the scripture is littered with prayers of godly people saying, oh God, do something with my heart. And God answering. That's how we obey those commands. So on the one hand, we are very responsible for the state of our heart. And we are powerless to directly affect it. But we can cry out to God to change our heart, and we can lead our heart, and we can put scripture before our heart, and in that context, God will do the work. And that's the good news. That's this is how we tend our hearts. I can't reach inside myself and make myself love what I don't love and hate what I don't hate. But I can say, oh God, would you please change my heart? Would you cultivate within me a heart that loves your word? Would you make me hate my sin more? Would you give me a hunger for your word? Would you unite my heart to fear your name? And we've given scriptural example and example and example of this. This is how we obey the command because in Deuteronomy and in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel, if you were to keep reading, the Lord God shows up and says, this very thing that I've commanded you to do, I will do for you. Listen to Deuteronomy 36. The Lord, your God, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So God commands them to radically alter their heart And then 20 chapters later, he says, I know you can't do it. I'll do it for you. Jeremiah 4.4, remember, he told them to circumcise their heart. And in 31.33, the promise of the new covenant, he says, this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I'll be their God and they shall be my people. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children. So God says, I require of you a changed heart. Then the Lord says, and I'll I'll do it for you. I'll give it to you. I'll do that miraculous work. But he wants us to seek it. He wants us to ask for it. He wants us to cry out to him for it. And Ezekiel 1831, remember he commanded that we create a new heart and a new spirit. And then in Ezekiel 36, 26, he says, speaking of the new covenant, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So God requires the impossible of us. And then he promises to do it for us. He requires a devoted, undivided, loyal love He requires we love him with all our heart and all our soul and all our might and we are powerless to make ourselves do that. And he says, but I'll do it for you. And then we have biblical example after biblical example of, but you gotta ask, you gotta seek it, you've gotta call on me. I delight in doing that. I will work in you, I will renew you, I will transform you. But you gotta ask, you've gotta seek. And that's what David does. And so David, in the middle of His adversity and his enemies stops and thinking about who God is, he realizes, wait a second, far more important than my enemies and far more important than the trouble I'm in. What if my heart pulls away from the Lord? What if my heart departs? It's not a question of his faithfulness. It's a question of my faithfulness. It's not a question of his love. It's a question of my love. 
And so in the middle of this stanza, focusing on God's goodness, he stops and he says, Lord, teach me your ways that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. And then he praises the Lord for his personal love and care of him. The first part of the stanza focused on a global expression of God's greatness and love. And now it's very personal. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart. And I'll glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love towards me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. I want you to notice something. Already, David's seeing a change in his heart. I will give you thanks, O Lord my God, with my whole heart. A verse before, his heart's divided. He needs God to unite his heart. And already, um, this is the confidence of faith. He is declaring that God is answering this prayer, that he has a whole heart. And whereas before, he was looking at God in relationship to the angels, in relationship to the other quote-unquote gods, human history of the earth now is incredibly personal. I'll glorify your name forever, for great is your steadfast love towards me. I mean, we've already mentioned a steadfast love back in verse 5, but there it's to all who call on you. Here it's to me. It's to me. You know, you can know that God is loving and God is good, but do you know that he's loving to you? Can you say God's love and his kindness is great towards me? And you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. So David praises God personally now. And then we move into the third stanza, where now David returns to his initial concern, his, his dilemma, whatever that might be. David prays for God's deliverance. David prays for God's deliverance. Oh God, insolent men have risen against me. A band of ruthless men seek my life. They do not set you before them. But you, O oh Lord, are God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me, be gracious to me, give your strength to your servant, save the son of your maidservant, show me a sign of your favor, that those who hate me may see and be put to shame. So first we see David lays out his specific need and danger. Apparently multiple men we don't know who they are, if they're his countrymen, or if they're pagans, whoever they are, they're his enemies. These insolent men have risen against him. There's many instances in David's life that this could speak to, whether it's the uh, revolt under his son, um, or whether it's Saul chasing him around, or what. David has real enemies, real men, who are plotting against him. And these are not men who love God. These are not men who love God. And we have different dangers. Hopefully, you don't have um, insolent men rising against you, plotting to seek your life. Um, perhaps you do. But we all have enemies, right? We all have difficulties and dangers. And so this isn't a prayer only for people who have men seeking their life, but this is for all of God's people who have trials, who have difficulties, who have obstacles. And then he returns to a final reason request and result. Just as we saw the second stanza crystallize David's understanding of his greatest need. Before I ask God to help me with my circumstances, I need to ask God to help me with me. Now, he's going to look at God's character again. There's a reason. That's the ordering of this. The reason for what he's about to ask is who God is. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious. 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And because of that, the argument goes, turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant. Save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor. And then here's the result that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, O Lord, have helped me and comforted me. So we're going to look at this piece by piece, but there's the logic. God, I know who you are. Because of who you are, do this for me so that this result will happen. That's, that's the final verses. A reason, a request, and a result. Now turning your Bibles to Exodus 34. Because what David is doing now, he's already been rooting his prayer requests in who God is. He goes to probably the pinnacle revelation of who God is in the Old Testament. Um, as you turn to Exodus 34, here's the situation. Israel has been unfaithful to God. They've made a golden calf. They've bowed down before it. The Lord calls Moses back up to the mountain and he tells Moses, that's it. I'm killing every last one of them. I will make a new nation from you, Moses. And Moses stands up and intercedes for Israel. And again, he pleads knowing the Lord's character. He says, oh Lord, the nations will scoff and say the Lord was unable to deliver this people. Oh Lord, far be it from you to do this. You are... And he pleads with God and God listens. And... Then, in the aftermath of this, in this massive show of mercy on God's part, Moses, perhaps emboldened, perhaps hungering to know more of who God is, um, look at verse 12 of chapter 33. Exodus 33, 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name and have... You have found favor in my sight. Therefore, if I found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. And verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, this very thing you have spoken, I will do for you, for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. And Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord and I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I show mercy. But you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. The Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on a rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I'll cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back. But my face you shall not be seen. So here's the context. Moses cries out, God, I want to know you more. I want to know your ways more. I want to see your glory. God says, okay, I'm going to walk by. I will proclaim my name. And I'm going to have to cover you because you can't look on me face to face. You would die. Then, that's the setting for what David quotes in Psalm 86. Because jump down to 34, 8. The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed. So here's that name of the Lord, the Lord's glory. It's all tied up with his person, with who he is. God's glory isn't some costume he wears, some jewelry he has. God's glory is God. Who he is is his glory. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. 
but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So God says, you want to see my glory, Moses? I'll proclaim my name, my character. And what is at the heart of God's glory and his person is that he is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now back in Psalm 86, that is exactly where David goes. Uh, it's as if he's thinking, I need mercy. I need grace. And I need to know God. I've already cried out, teach me your ways and unite my heart. And in that context, one passage in the Old Testament comes together where God showed amazing grace passing over the sins of Israel. Where God supremely revealed his character and name. And so David builds his argument from that. You are the God who revealed himself to Moses and who revealed himself to be the Lord, the Lord, a God, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You're that God. Which then leads to their quest. Turn to me. Be gracious to me. So the blanks there. The reason is who God is. The reason is who God is. The request, save me. Deliver me. Help me. Because of who you are. And the result, David sees, show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, O Lord, have helped me and comforted me. The result, vindication. Vindication for both David and for the Lord. Vindicate David. Perhaps they're saying that God's mad with David, that David's been unfaithful, that the Lord is disciplining him. And David will be vindicated when the Lord comes to deliver him. But more importantly, we know these men, back in verse 14, do not set the Lord before them. And David does. And so when the Lord shows up to vindicate David, the Lord shows himself to be mighty. The Lord shows himself to be powerful and great to save. And the Lord is vindicated. And it's just a wonderful movement as David reaches back to this, this extreme manifestation, revelation of God's person and character in a, in a moment of unsurpassed mercy and grace, at least in that point in history. And he goes back to there and he says, you're that God. You're the God who showed himself to Moses. You're the God who said of himself, I am merciful and abounding in steadfast love and mercy. So since you're that God, won't you turn to me and help me and save me so that my enemies will see and know that you're God. That, that's his reasoning. That's how he brings his request before the Lord. And in the few minutes we have left, I just want to suggest that whereas Exodus 34 is a mighty and wonderful revelation of who God is, it is not the supreme and final one, is it? There is one. If, if we're going to follow David's pattern... And if in our moments of need, we're going to argue the person and character of God, we're going to go to where God's person and mercy meet, have we not now seen one who is the very icon, image of the invisible God? Is there not one who has said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? In fact, in John chapter 1, and go to John 1, we'll close here. In John chapter 1, John actually borrows from this exact same account in Exodus 34. In this prologue, John compares how much greater the revelation of God in Jesus Christ is to even that great revelation of God in the cleft of the rock. 
pick it up. John chapter 1. We'll end here. John chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And there's a link between the Hebrew um, steadfast love and faithfulness and grace and truth. There's, There's a link there. Jesus is full of grace and truth. Verse 16. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now get this, and here's the link with Exodus 34. No one has ever seen God. Most specifically, Moses, who God said, you can't see me. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. See, it's John's argument that Jesus, what he brings, the grace he brings, the revelation of God he brings, eclipses, supersedes, is greater than, is deeper than, is broader than, is in every sense superior than everything that came before. And so what that means for us is this, that if in David's moment of anxiety and fear, if he goes to those deep spots of Scripture where God has revealed his character in person, and pleads for grace based on that. And that means we're pleading Jesus. That means for following that example. We're saying, Lord, I know I messed up and I know I'm in trouble, but Jesus, because of who he is, I I know what you're like because I know Jesus. And based on his character, this is why we pray in his name. Not in our own merit, not in our own name, in his name. He was guilty, but Jesus, please help. And then that, of course, you know, begs the question, do you know Jesus? Do you know God supremely revealed through his son? If you don't, I'd I'd encourage you to talk to someone here. Uh, Get a hold of me. Get a hold of one of the elders. We'd love to talk to you about how you can know God's son, how you can know the grace of God, the forgiveness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. But, But that is really the final manifestation of who God is, is his son. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers and the prophets through prophets and visions and signs. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in son. We appointed heir of all things, his son. And so we go to Jesus for grace and we go to Jesus for help. And we argue Jesus for his glory in his name. Wouldn't you be gracious to me, O God, a sinner? Let's pray. Dear God, we just thank you for who you are. We thank you for knowing who you are in your son. We thank you for revealing yourself to us. I mean, Lord, thank you that you delight to help the poor, the weak. We thank you that you are a God abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Lord, we recognize that our greatest need is that you would change our heart, that you would unite our heart. We spend so much time worrying about whether you'll be faithful to us when really the real question is, will we be faithful to you? Unite our hearts to fear your name and change our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand.